According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here once again for the purpose of growth. Join me in the Gospel of Luke. We're moving on to chapter 14 this morning, Luke 14. Two weeks now since our last class together. Appreciate the time away last week and the blessings of the Spokane Bible Church Conference. Appreciate your prayers in regard to that. Lots of blessings there all the way around. All right, Luke 14 then. It's episode 21 in our uh, last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus Christ. Meal with a Pharisee ruler. Starts in verse 1 and takes us down through verse 24. It happened that when he went into the house uh, of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Well, what a coincidence. (laughs) How'd that guy get here? Say, well, whose house is this? And uh, who is it that arranged for this man to be here at this time on this day? Uh, in the presence of Jesus while they were watching him closely. All right. So uh, uh, we, I think we can recognize the entrapment and what's happening here. And uh, the Lord just leaves them speechless, which uh, I appreciate. So Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. It's remarkable, all of the laws and all of the additions to the laws and all of the traditions and all of the man-made expectations and all of the perversions that they had spent centuries documenting and, and establishing and fixing to the point where the Sabbath was no longer really a biblical Sabbath. It was their Sabbath as far as they were concerned. It's their power system. It's their means by which they can control people's lives and so forth. And yet with all of that documentation and dozens and hundreds of, of uh, things that he attached to the law, this is legal, that's not legal, this is legal, that's not legal, something that never came up <laughs> was um, performing divine acts of, of, of a miraculous nature for the purpose of healing somebody. Uh, that never came up, uh, primarily because, of course, uh, none of these people were ever involved in doing that kind of a thing, all right? Uh, acts of divine power, miracles, the, the mark of, of prophets and so forth. Um, none of that, uh, they had any cause to address any of those issues because none of them were involved in any of those activities, as you might recognize. There's really been 400 years of prophetic silence since Malachi and... Uh, in any event, Jesus is participating in things that uh, that they haven't banned. The Scripture certainly didn't ban. When you're doing the works of God, then you're doing the works of God. And when your message is consistent with the Word, then you have the indications of a true apostle or a true prophet and, uh, and what goes with that. So they have no answer. There's no biblical command, prohibition against it. There's no uh, uh, Pharisaic tradition against it. There's no Mishnah tradition against it. And uh, and so they can't really give an answer. They can't they won't admit that he's okay for what he's doing. Right. They won't admit that. Well, there's nothing against it. There's no rule. There's no law. They can't bring themselves to say that. And so they stay silent. And so he just stares at him and then he heals the guy. And uh, and I like that. I appreciate that. So 
In any event, this is what we'll deal with here today. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time together today. We thank you for the grace that allows us to be here today. And Father, uh, for the break last week, I just praise your name and celebrate how faithful you are to make these things possible. I thank you for uh, Pastor Todd Kennedy and the graciousness of the believers there in Spokane, all of their hospitality to host the conferences the way that they do. Uh, Father, just uh, an abundant blessing, and I just want to praise your name for it. Now, Father, once again today, as you've been graciously uh, providing for us to assemble together, we ask that you would set aside distractions, turn every thought uh, captive to obedience to Christ Jesus. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. It seems like maybe I brought some of that rain with me from, uh, <laughs> oh, it rained. I thought it was going to snow. It was 20 degrees a couple of mornings that I woke up and uh, glad to be back. Glad to be back. All right. Well, let's set the context. I like to do that under point one of any outline in this series. So setting the context. Having dismissed the Pharisees' warning regarding Herod, Jesus dines with a Pharisee ruler. Remember, as chapter 13 was winding down, the last part of chapter 13, the Pharisees were approaching and warning him, you've got to get out of town, you've got to get out of Perea, Herod wants to kill you. Uh, you've got to flee to, to Judea, see, where, Herod, where you're out of Herod's jurisdiction. And uh, we discussed it under that episode as well, how phony that was and how it really uh, rung hollow. And, uh, and yet... We move from chapter 13 into chapter 14, and we continue to have Pharisee um, involvement. So point one then in the outline, we're really going to give you four total overall things here. But point one, having dismissed the Pharisee's warning regarding Herod, he almost just ignores it, dismisses it out of hand. He says, go tell that old fox, and he's got a message for him. And he's not really worried about whether Herod wants him dead or not. Because the father wants him dead, and the father wants him dead on a very precise date coming up uh, very quickly on the, uh, the, uh, the Passover that's approaching. So whether or not uh, Herod wants him dead is at this point irrelevant. Uh, Jesus is not uh, at all concerned over that. He has, to be honest, he has his own battle in the soul as far as whether he's going to be obedient to the father's will. And that's a much bigger issue as far as Jesus Christ is concerned. So having dismissed the Pharisee's warning regarding Herod, that's Luke 13, 31, Jesus dines with a Pharisee ruler in Luke 14, 1. And the reasons for accepting the invitation, the reasons for uh, being in this man's home, uh, I think first and foremost, of course, are to be obedient to the Father. Jesus does nothing without the Father, uh, his guidance and his uh, leading. Uh, there's work to be done here. There's a message to be preached here. And it might be this Pharisee ruler who's the uh, primary um, beneficiary of the message or actually it's much more likely that there's somebody else in the picture and when we glance down to um oh uh let's see verse 15 one of those who were reclining on the table with him heard this see i think he's the real target of this whole message not the man that's hosting it not the uh, pharisee ruler or any of the pharisees we don't know if this man was a Pharisee or not, we just know that he was a, a another invited guest reclining at the table with him. Heard this and he said to him, blessed is everyone who 
will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So here's a man that's oriented to the kingdom and a man that is positive to teaching to where he can um, contribute to the message that Jesus gave. Jesus gives, gives a parable here. We'll address it shortly in verses 7 and following. Uh, there's one message in 7 through 11. There's another message in 12 through 14. And remarkably enough, he does not mention the kingdom in this. He talks about a, a, a feast. He talks about a dinner and a wedding feast and so forth. But he does not relate it to the wedding feast in the kingdom. This invited guest does that. He makes the connection between the wedding feast parable and the coming kingdom. So he's got a, a capacity to understand certain things and was able to make that link. And it's a real remarkable thing. We'll discuss that here in a moment. But it's a blessing when a message is being taught and when a believer with a frame of reference, with a doctrinal understanding that's walking in the light, when a believer can take the message that's being given and connect it with other messages that have been given as well or other scriptures or other biblical patterns and to be able to make those connections rightly, to make those connections properly is an amazing thing. And we always encourage that and think it's a uh, it's a mark of uh, concentration is a blessing to your study if uh, you're, you're thinking along with a pastor, not just, you know, passively receiving information, but you're actively involved in the study itself where your 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 own priesthood is is digesting the meat. Your own priesthood is considering the scriptures. Maybe you're even thinking ahead saying, oh, I know where I know where Pastor Bob's going with this. He's going to jump over here to, to Romans chapter eight next. He's going to bring this in here next. Right. And sometimes uh, you're right, sometimes you're not, and sometimes, uh, you know, and that's the, that's the wonderful thing of it, you know, and I've had folks come up to me after class and say, uh, oh, pastor, I was just so sure you were going to go over here to, you know, Philippians 2, and, and you're going to connect it in right there, and, and, uh, and you didn't go there, and I was kind of disappointed, I thought that's where you were going to go with it, and I just kind of smile and say, well, you know, probably should have, that would have been a good place to go, <laughs> didn't cross my mind, but I appreciate you bringing that up, kind of a thing, see. And uh, different things that happen there. So here's this man in verse 15. We don't know his name. We don't know a thing about him except that he's invited to a Pharisee's house for a, uh, a a Sabbath meal. And he was able to make that connection to describe the blessed, the happiness, the Makarios happiness that takes place in the uh, kingdom of God. So we'll address that here as well. Now, who is this ruler? The ruler is an archon. A-R-C-H-O-N. Archon. Number 758, and uh, it's used 37 times in the New Testament. I meant to add an extra word there as well, and I did not. This slide was giving me fits, actually, and the Archon was uh, doing some goofy font things, and I spent 45 minutes fighting that and failed to put the other term that's in there. Uh, Archon is... um, Technically, I mean, it's a participle, but it's used so frequently as its own substantive noun. We think of it as a word all on its own, uh, as a masculine singular participle, really. Uh, but there's another term, uh, it's a feminine term, arche, or the plural archai, that are sometimes called rulers, all right? Like the rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, and so forth. And I believe those terms are very well connected and linked, and I should have given that to you as well. Um, I'll try to remember for next week to get that added to the slide. But Archon, A-R-C-H-O-N, number 758, is used 37 times in the New Testament. Uh, used to describe, uh, typically in a Jewish context, it's describing their rulers, their leaders. 
uh, and it could be Sanhedrin members. Any voting member of the Sanhedrin would be a ruler of the nation of Israel because under the uh, dominion of the Roman uh, sovereignty, they had, of course, a Roman governor that was the authority over them. But they allowed, the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to operate and function within certain parameters. They could handle Jewish uh, issues. They could handle religious issues in particular. The Romans were fine. They were just kind of hands off. Uh, you know, have your religion, do your temple stuff, uh, just pay your tribute, pay your taxes, and, and don't rebel, and you can do pretty much whatever you want to do. Uh, they had a, just a, a handful of limitations. They could not execute criminals. That was one thing that required Roman approval to do. That's why they needed to take him to take Jesus to Pilate for his execution. Um, and so forth. Anyway, Archon was used often for Sanhedrin members. It was used for priests. It was used for scribes and Pharisees. Uh, that these were the rulers, these were the people that had leadership within the Jewish nation. Remember, they are under divine discipline. The Davidic throne has been vacated since 586 B.C., and it is not going to be reseated until uh, Christ returns. So uh, their rulers are uh, uh, really a variety of different people for different uh, circumstances, priests, Pharisees, scribes, Sanhedrin members, synagogue officials, and so forth. It's also used to describe angelic beings. And that's why anytime you have archon, you want to kind of evaluate the passage and say, all right, is this a Jewish realm or is this a, a, an angelic realm? Does it, this appear to be a human application here? Does it appear to be a, an angelic application here? And then you can sort it out there fairly well in that regard. So um, real quickly, this won't take a whole lot of time, but you'll see these guys. And I think it's important that we fix this in our mind. Because for us, it would be kind of weird to have national leaders separate from um, the actual government that reigns. Would that seem kind of weird? To have national leaders separate from the government that reigns or the military that has sovereignty over a territory. And that's... Uh, Weird. I mean, just imagine if we had an authority structure, a power structure that kind of ran separate from the federal government, the state government, the county government, and so forth. It was just kind of an independent little body, and, and of course, in this case, religious, uh, and, and having control over what you do and what you eat and how you live and where you live and, and things of that nature. And that's really what this Sanhedrin was all about, what these Jewish leaders were all about. And recognizing, of course, that in the plan of God, they are the stewards. In the plan of God, the stewardship is not vested in Gentiles, not vested in Rome. It's vested in the Jewish people and their capacity as the custodians of the scriptures. All right. So they do have a part to play and they are accountable for what they do. All right. So in Matthew chapter nine, we see these guys in verse 18 and in verse 23. And what we're going to find in a lot of these cases is that... Um, they're either going to be hostile to Christ or they're going to be approaching him on a faith basis. There appears to be no middle ground. They either love him as uh, a savior, as uh, a messenger from God, or they hate him as a threat to their power. And so uh, here's an example of someone who loves him, a synagogue official in Matthew 9:18, comes to him and says, my daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus got up and began to follow him and, and uh, so forth. Along the way, he heals this woman with the hemorrhage, had that 12-year hemorrhage, and then comes to the official's house and uh, brings the, the daughter back. So verse 20, 18 and verse 23 
uh, is called an official, a ruler, an archon of the Jews. In his case, his love for his daughter was able to overcome his natural prejudice against Jesus, perhaps, allowed him to abandon his uh, political attachments and uh, loyalties to the Pharisees, Sanhedrin, and all the rest, and actually come to Jesus for uh, the miracle to be applied. Over in Luke, Luke 8.41, there came a man named Jairus. He was an official of the synagogue and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him. And there there it again is his daughter, parallel text to what we just read there in uh, Matthew. Matthew didn't give us the name, Luke gives us the name. 14.1 is the text we're studying today. 18.18, Luke 18.18. rich young ruler a ruler questioned him saying good teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and he says why do you call me good no one is good except god alone and uh quizzes him on his own understanding of the law you know the commandments you know the law you're a you're a ruler of the jews to be a ruler of the jews you had this understanding of the law you were a teacher of the law probably an interpreter of the law depending on what exact capacity he had here as a ruler you know the commandments, and he lists a few here. Well, I've kept all these from my youth. Say, well, have you kept all of them perfectly? 100% your entire life? Jesus heard this. He said, this guy's like Paul. Just convinced that he's made it. As to the righteousness found in the law, blameless. Man, I'm there. I'm it. That law, those 613 commandments, they're describing me, right? If you ever come across a prideful person thinks he's so great that he deserves to be in heaven, uh, you've got a real problem on your hands because that's someone so prideful he doesn't know he needs a savior well everybody has an issue and jesus of course knows his uh, through prophetic insight not omniscience but prophetic insight here was revealed to him he said to him one thing you still lack sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven come follow me so he finds the one issue the bugaboo that's going to prevent this man his money is what he's got an attachment to and uh, the guy come, uh, hears these things, becomes very sad, for he was extremely rich. And so you find it. And the, the, what this passage illustrates is the pride associated with these rulers, the pride, the wealth, the esteem that they can build in their culture at that point. All right, uh, chapter 23, you've got verse 13, verse 35. I don't know that we have to read all of these, but it's good to have a sampling. Luke 23... Uh, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the and the people. So notice the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. The priesthood had a significant faction within the Sanhedrin, and the high priest was the president of the Sanhedrin, but they did not always control everything within the Sanhedrin. It ebbed and flowed, and there were seasons where truly the Pharisees had the, the dominating power of the Sanhedrin uh, more so than the Sadducees, uh, which was the party of the, of the, uh, the priesthood here. And so he said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites people to rebellion. Behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man. Remarkably enough in the uh, the conflict there. The, the secular authority finds him innocent. But it's these Jewish rulers that want him dead. See, and that's what's going to come under divine judgment. And they, in fact, invite it. They say his blood be on us and upon our children. And uh, that rash vow, they say there, is what uh, you know paves the way for the gruesome destruction of their city and, and their people 
in uh, a very short order here. So there they are. But now understand the role of these rulers. The role of these Jewish rulers, see. And they're the ones that are held accountable because they are the stewards. God has vested the stewardship within Israel, not within Rome, within Israel. And they are entrusted with the oracles of God. They are the, uh, the ones that are to be proclaiming the truth of God's word. They're to, be, they're to have fulfill their priestly function, their ambassador function, their soldier function in the angelic conflict. And, uh, and they're not doing it. And they're crucifying the Christ. And they're going to come under judgment because of that. So the rulers are emphasized there. Verse 35, uh, the people stood looking on and even the rulers were sneering at him. See, now these guys, it's interesting. They, they view themselves as so lofty, so exalted, so uh, superior. You know, the Jews separated themselves from the Gentiles. That was a mark of their holiness. Uh, the Pharisees and the rulers separated themselves from even other Jews because that showed even one step above, you know, the elite status of, of the Pharisees and the, and the rulers there. And yet here, they couldn't help themselves. I think the darkness of their own soul, the darkness of their own carnality, that uh, as he's hanging on the cross, even they uh, came down to the gutter. They came down to the level of the the hoi polloi, the rabble, the mobs, and they started sneering. They started shouting the insults and the catcalls and all of the, the, uh, the, you know, the base behavior of the mob there. Interesting. You know, what happens when a mob mentality takes over and even people that ought to know better find themselves participating in some pretty uh, despicable behavior? The last one in Luke is in chapter 24, verse 20. The chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And this is the, uh, the testimony there as Jesus is speaking to the men on the Emmaus Road. All right, then the Gospel of John. Quickly then, John 3, because uh, a ruler of the Jews is none other than Nicodemus. And uh, I don't believe that uh, Nicodemus was the character in Luke 14. Otherwise, um, that could have been mentioned by John. When John introduces it here in John 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this guy gets saved. And, uh, jo- and uh, Joseph of Arimathea gets saved. There were others that got saved, but had to keep things quiet because of their concern over being exposed. So Nicodemus there in the great you must be born again message. Uh, chapter 7 in John has uh, verse 26 and verse 48. And the crowds are amazed that uh, there's Jesus at the Feast of Trumpets speaking publicly and uh, they're not saying anything to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? The common people were catching on very quickly that this guy has to be the Christ. No one else meets all the criteria, the qualifications and uh, the miracles and the birthright and the, the, uh, the, the message. That to them, it was undeniable. What was keeping the rulers from admitting it? Say. And again, I don't think it was a knowledge deficiency. I think it was a pride issue that they could not admit what was undeniable even to the, uh, the man on the street that understood that. Verse 48, the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees try to use this, their uh, superiority, their higher position, their educated status, all of their learning and and part of it, they, uh, they're going to throw, they can't figure out why these officers haven't arrested him yet. And uh, they come back to report, you know, why, why don't you have him arrested yet? 
<laughs> they say, well, have you heard him preach? How do we arrest this guy? No one ever preached like him. And um, interestingly enough, the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees answered, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? As if that ends all the argument. See, if people that with the right education know better. See, and it's the same kind of fallacy that happens today. You know, real biologists, we were talking about scientists, you know, real biologists with degrees, and they don't believe in creationism. They, of course, know the science of evolutionism, see. And, and statements like this, they just simply ring hollow because they're, they're fallacious to start with. None of the Pharisees or rulers have believed in him, has he? See, that's a fallacious argument to start with, and it's also factually inaccurate. Several of the rulers, like Nicodemus and some of the other rulers and the Pharisees had followed after him. And so uh, we find it there. Over in chapter 12 is where we get the information that some of them were a little bit undercover in their faith. 12.42. Here he is preaching and uh, preaching Isaiah. And when Isaiah is preached, the Jewish heart just responds and sings. I think that's why Isaiah is neglected in uh, modern times. You talk to a typical Jewish person today and show them Isaiah 53, they've never seen it before. It's never, they've never read that part of their Bibles before. It's in their text, but it's never, uh, it's never taught, developed, spoken of, addressed in any synagogue or any place at all. And so um, in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So they're saved, they believe in him, but they've got these other hang-ups that uh, until they can grow out of them, until the Word of God can transform them and they get some maturity and they grow, um, they, uh, they're going to have to keep things quiet, keep things undercover. All right, so those are, that's on the human realm of things. In the angelic realm of things, you have Ephesians 2, 2 and 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. The rulers, just like you have the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And uh, 1 Corinthians 2 is important, not only for today's study, but for additional things down the road. If you ever want to study omniscience, the first thing you're going to learn is that it's a bigger study than you know. Because uh, simply saying God knows everything is uh, an understatement and it misses the point because you have to understand the totality of what everything is. It's not just everything that exists, but everything that could exist, everything that might exist, every potentiality of things, even the ones that will never come about. They could come about if other things happen along the way, then other things could come about later on. And some things can never come about because the things that require them to come about, they themselves never come about. So you have secondary and thirdly and fourthly, you have dimensions of things that our finite mind just can barely even wrap around. But Scripture includes the language of what if. The Scripture includes counterfactual information such as we have here, the language of what if. And so uh, in, when Paul is contrasting God's wisdom from the cosmos wisdom, Obviously, God's wisdom is what we want to cling to. 
We do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Now, who are the rulers of this age? Satan and his structure, his hierarchy. They're the rulers of this age, the ruler of this world, the ruler of this age, the God of this age. Not talking about human beings in this context. None of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They did not understand the mistake they were making until it was too late. Until it was absolutely too late. They got him on the cross. And uh, I think at that point is when it started to dawn on some of their satanic minds that maybe, (laughs) uh, maybe this was a bad idea. And I think so then they start motivating and the taunting and the tempting and the come on down, come on down. You can't come on down. You know, I think all those lures and and threats and and teasings and and uh, things of that nature to come on down was part of the regrets that the rulers of this age were starting to figure out that, uh, wait a minute, um, he's up there because the father wants him there and he's doing what the father wants him to do. And he's praying, interceding. And uh, one of these thieves next to him gets saved and there's work being done here. And then the demons are starting to figure out, hmm, maybe this is uh, maybe this is a problem here. So if they had and I love this, if they had. Now, the truth, the reality is that they didn't. That's the reality. And omniscience knows the truth of the reality that they did not understand it. But omniscience also knows the consequences of an alternate reality. In other words, a counterfactual, a what if. What if they had understood it? If they had understood it, then what would their activity have been? Well, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So God knows all the what ifs of things, even the things that don't come about. And you've got to understand that. If you get nothing else out of today, that right there is worth the gas money they got you here. All right? Because there are theologies out there that will tell you that the only things God knows, it's an inferior view of omniscience. And it's really, it's an unbiblical, tragic view of foreknowledge. And they will tell you, they'll look in the eye and tell you this. The only things God foreknows are the things that he decrees. And the only way he can know with foreknowledge, the things of the future is because he has decreed them to make them so. All right. This verse proves that's a lie. This verse proves that God knows things that he didn't decree. And he foreknows what uh, the rulers of this age would have done under conditions that never happened. Conditions he did not decree. God has um, his omniscience includes every reality and every potentiality, the potential uh, things that never come about, but could under different circumstances. All right, Ephesians 2.2. 2. Ephesians 2.2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Every last one of us in this room can plug your own name in there. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can put your own name in there. You, Bob Olander, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Every last one of us, Okay. And if you're not yet saved, if you're still an unbeliever sitting here, then change it from were to are, and the rest of this still applies to you. How about that? Um, In which you formerly walked, dead men walking, there you are. In which you formerly walked, all you dead guys, according to the course of this cosmos, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working 
in the sons of disobedience, according to the prince. The word prince there is archon, according to the ruler, the prince of the power of the air. I wonder about that sometimes, the power of the air. Why is it that Jesus Christ is going to meet us in the air? That's right. I think it's a tremendous battlefield victory that takes place there. The sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. I think it's going to be a tremendous military engagement that's going to clear the ground in hostile territory to claim his bride. And we will celebrate in the air part of the triumph over the forces of darkness. All right. So he's in a Pharisee home, not just a Pharisee home, but a ruler of the Pharisees. And he's there to eat bread. Makes sense. That's what he was invited there for. They were there to find fault. He was there to eat bread. They were there to find fault. If you want to spell that out and at some points A and B, then you can do so. And follow along the outline as I have it in my notes. So subpoint A, Jesus was there to eat bread. Subpoint B, the Pharisees were there to find fault. I want to introduce you to a concept here because none of us want to uh, be fault finders. Uh, none of us want to... Um, it's an activity we should not imitate. Although we are commanded to be on the alert, uh, we have imperatives, part of angelic conflict, that we have to be mindful, but for right reasons, not for wicked reasons. We don't want to be on the alert, always looking for an opportunity for sin. Wrong. <laughs> okay? That's the wrong kind of being on the alert. In fact, you want to be on just the opposite. You want to always be on the alert, watching out for the snares, watching out for the sin uh, things so you can avoid them, right? Well, the word here is paratereo. P-A-R-A-T-E-R-E-O. Again, two parts, para and tereo. And remember everything uh, we studied under parakaleo, the encourager, comforter, to call alongside? A parakaleo would be kaleo to call and para alongside. So you call alongside. And to call alongside is used uh, wonderfully. Biblically, beautifully, it's a spiritual gift. It's a church age function. It's it's the encouragement of a brother to a brother, a sister to a sister, where you call them alongside and you put your arm around their shoulder and and you offer them an encouragement if that's necessary. You offer them comfort if that's necessary. You offer them a rebuke if that's necessary. Sometimes it's a word for exhortation. And the best thing about a side by side exhortation is that it allows you to do it in privacy, one on one, where it's not a it's not a big embarrassment or it's not a big scandal it's the best kind of exhortation possible because it's a coming alongside and and not just barking orders saying you've got to do this but an exhortation saying come on let us do this see i'm walking this way come with me let's glorify jesus christ let's let's uh, do what we're supposed to do in the plan of god that's the positive we studied all this we've studied all this extensively in second corinthians chapter one on parakaleo well swap out now the kaleo to call with tereo to keep. Tereo is to keep. And so para tereo to keep alongside. Para tereo to keep alongside, meaning keeping in terms of um, a watchful keeping, a guarding, a protecting, or a um, dominating, if you want to think of it in that sense. This is very much worldly way of thinking. In fact, we've got worldly idioms to this day expressions to this day you've heard them maybe you've used them i've used them right 
What do they say to, uh, I don't even know the original source of this quote, but keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Why is that? Well, paratereo is the principle of application there. You're keeping a close eye on them. You're keeping them. You're not letting them out of your sight. You are so convinced of their dirty dealings or underhandedness or the deceiviousness of your enemies that you want them right there under constant observation, ready to dish it out before they can get you. Okay? That's the worldly anti-golden rule. Do unto others before they can do unto you. Okay? It's just pure wickedness. Absolutely pure. And that's what these guys are doing. They are keeping, and the translation here, to keep a close eye on him is uh, not necessarily, I mean, it's a good translation, not really uh, wrong watching him closely. I, I just would like to intensify it and make it a little bit more vivid in our thinking that we can really recognize the, uh, the aspect there of para terreo. You six times in the New Testament, Mark 3, 2, Luke 6, 7, and it's interesting, there are typically um, Pharisees watching Jesus um, in, in, with hostile intent. The one used by Paul is quite remarkable because it describes how um, how fastidiously the religious, legalistic Jewish leaders would keep the Sabbath. They uh, they would keep it. They would observe it. They would they would watch it closely in all their commandments, as if it was a um, well kind of a different attitude being expressed there. But most of these should be fairly familiar with uh, Mark three two. They were, uh, here's a man in the synagogue with, whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And uh, in a very similar episode to what we have here today. Likewise, Luke 7. I think Luke 7 is a parallel to Mark 3. I'm sorry, Luke 6, verse 7. Man with a withered hand. His right hand was withered in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the scribes and the Pharisees were... Uh, paratereoing him, watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath. They might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, said to them, said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Challenges them there. They can't say a word. <laughs> they cannot say a word. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or destroy it? What's the purpose in the Sabbath anyway? But to provide rest. To glorify God. And healing this man, do you think that's going to provide him some rest? Do you think it's going to glorify God that a work of power has been done? Not only is it not wrong to heal on the Sabbath, but it is the most perfect day in the week to heal a man. It's the best day to heal a man. And so looking around at them all, they're all staying silent. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he did so, the hand was restored. Interesting, the miracle was already done. When he said, stretch out your hand, it was just to prove. It was the evidence to prove to all these jerks that uh, that uh, the miracle was done they themselves were filled with rage <laughs> you know you see the works of god and you're either humbled by them glorifying god for them rejoicing that man what an amazing thing who are we to see such things or you're filled with rage what what sparks that uh, i think we know it's the Satanic wisdom at work there. Discuss together what they might do to Jesus. What are we going to do about this guy? Keeps doing all these miracles. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. The closer you get to the Passion Week, it's, they're pulling their hair out. They're saying, what are we going to do? The whole world's going to follow after this guy. We've got to stop him now. And it's just uh, remarkable. 
And even in their insanity, they testify to the truth because the whole world is going to follow after him. Praise God for it. The whole world is going to follow after him at second advent when the unbelievers are purged and the kingdom comes with all its glory. All right, Luke 14.1 is our text of study today. It comes up again in Luke 20.20. Luke 20.20. All of this is a good illustration, though. Recognize, of course, as they treated our master, are they going to treat us any differently? You understand you're under a microscope? You know those people watching you? waiting for you to trip up, just waiting to, to jump out with an aha moment. Just say, aha, I knew they were hypocrites. I knew they were no good. They're sinners just like me. Who do they think they are? And they find that you're involved in a sin or something, and they, they just would love to trumpet it and expose it and, and uh, waiting for that aha moment. And the glorious thing is, is when it happens, you can just smile and turn the tables and say, yeah, how about that? I'm a sinner. Sinner saved by grace. No better than you. No right, you know, any righteousness comes as an imputation by grace. The Father gives me His righteousness. Just turn it right around. Make it a, an evangelistic moment. Anyway, we've probably seen enough of these. Um, what is this uh, condition this guy's got? Well, Dr. Luke diagnoses this patient as having dropsy or edema. Dropsy is kind of no longer a current term in medical usage. They're using, um, is it edema, edema, edema is the, all right. This condition featured fluid in the tissues with significant swelling. It did so back in Luke's day. It does so in our day. Typically could have indicated cancer, heart problems, liver problems, kidney problems. Any number of things can cause water retention, build up in the tissues and different things. Really neat medical terminology um, used by Galen, used by Hippocrates, used by a lot of the Greek medical writers of the day. And, of course, Dr. Luke, uh, Luke, the beloved physician, his gospel record is just filled with medical terminology from chapter 1 to the end. And here's a place where that happens. I keep flipping pages. I don't even know where I'm going. There I am. The man in front of him was a man. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Well, the vocabulary there is... An interesting study, but what we would call today edema. And uh, again, I asked myself, well, who is this guy? Is he a burglar? How did he get in the house? Right? <laughs> is he a family member? Is he related to the Pharisee? Was he invited? Was he a plant? What was he doing there? All right. Because uh, under normal circumstances, this guy is outcast unclean. This guy can't come into the temple. This guy can't come into the synagogue. This guy can't uh, bring an offering. He's outclass. He's like a like a leper. He's got a skin condition. He is ceremonially impure, and a Pharisee would not have him in his house. A ruler of the Pharisees would not have him in his house. He would defile his entire house. So why is he here? I think it's the whole thing's a setup the, from beginning to end. It's a it's a way to uh, document uh, you know additional Sabbath violations. Not that they haven't had several prior to this, but they're able to, uh, to do it once again. Thirdly, Jesus challenges his critics as he's done before. We've seen some of these already. And this episode is very similar. You know, that man with the withered hand in Luke 6, verses 6 through 11. We were just there a moment ago. Same thing. Jesus just spelled it out. He says, lawful or not, what is it? Make up your minds. Am I breaking your law? Am I breaking the law of Moses? What law am I breaking when I do this? 
see. <laughs> It'd be like the uh, the fellow I go visit in prison. He uh, he enjoys using an illustration about Texas law and the distinctions between the laws of the state of Texas, which we are subject to, and the laws of the Republic of Texas, which uh, none of us are subject to because that stopped existing back in 1845 or whatever it was. All right, I think it was 1845. At whatever point, well. It no longer exists. It's no longer a sovereign authority upon this earth. And we're not subject to the laws of the Republic of Texas. It's an invalid consideration. If someone was to, uh, you know, file a charge and say you're violating a, a statute under the laws of the Republic of Texas, then you could just laugh at them or, or you know, ignore them. And certainly you wouldn't expect uh, to be uh, thrown into a, uh, a prison facility for violating the laws of the Republic of Texas. See. Now, if you violate the laws of the state of Texas, well, that's a different matter. And the uh, officers of the state of Texas and the judges of the state of Texas courts will find you guilty and, and put you in an incarceration facility under the uh, authority of the state of Texas and, and all the rest. Well, when he's asking, is it lawful, he's giving them opportunities here to stipulate uh, yes or no and, and basically to also uh, delineate which laws which authority? Is this God's law? Is this Mo the law of Moses? Or is this your tradition? Is this your uh, interpretation? Is this your uh, understanding? As far as that goes, yeah, they won't give him an answer. Because the truth is, he's not breaking any kind of law. There's no uh, thou shalt not perform a miracle on the Sabbath commandment that's given. Uh, chapter 13 we not looked at that today. We were there recently, though, in verses 15 through 17, where again, Sabbath day, this woman for 18 years was bent double by a demon. And um, the synagogue official, I love this, in verse 14, there are six days in which work could be done. Come during one of them. You know, show up Sunday through Friday to get your miracle. <laughs> Don't get healed on the Sabbath day. But Jesus said, you hypocrite. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? That's not a Sabbath violation. Why would this be? This woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? It's the perfect day. It's the best day. Better than Sunday through Friday put together. So as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. There it is again. Man, they can't win. Every time they think they've got something, he just turns the tables and they're embarrassed. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Well, of course. Man, there's miracles going on. Celebrate that. To me, it's almost like the pathetic situation when um, there's jealousy between churches or some kind of dumb, idiot, stupid thing like that, right? Well, I'm in a name-calling mood today, aren't I? How'd that happen? But some church is having a revival. They're doing different things. Or they're getting folks saved and they're praising God and growing and different things like that. Why am I going to grumble? Well, who do they think they are? Why aren't we growing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, pathetic. Praise God. Are they, are they increasing? Great. Let's adopt the, the testimony of John the Baptist. No one can receive anything unless it's granted to them by the Father. Wonderful. Praise God that they're growing. How about that? Well, Jesus challenges his critics as he's done before. Then he proceeds to preach a pair of parables on pride. Got two parables coming up here. A pair of parables. They're both about pride. They're both about pride. The first one about 
showing up at a dinner party and taking a seat that you're not entitled to. And then you get embarrassed when the guy says, excuse me, uh, somebody here more important than you. (laughs) Would you mind, uh, or not even would you mind, just vacate, get out of that seat. It's not your seat. Okay. Which is a, a powerful message because in the, in the Roman culture, this was, this was everything. This was absolutely everything. The seating arrangements at the tables for uh, rank and position. I'm going to try to illustrate some of that either today or next week as we uh, describe this. But the, not only was it fitting in their day, it, it, it struck a chord in the uh, Jewish mindset where uh, there was such esteem for the rulers, for the lawyers and scribes, for the Bible teachers, for the rabbis, for the Pharisees. So rank and esteem and social class, I mean, it was, it, they, they thrived on this. They viewed their social status as the equivalent of, uh, you know, pecking order in the kingdom of heaven kind of a thing. That, you know, as, as uh, you know, these, these self-righteous, holier-than-thou, superior-minded Pharisees, that's simply a reflection here on earth of what, you know, the reality is when, when the Christ comes. Boy, they're going to be the, the they're going to be the, the, uh, Glorious folks there in the kingdom. And even the disciples were having issues there. They were trying to get reserved seating in the kingdom of heaven too. Say, I want to sit on your right and on your left and blah, blah, blah. So for a Jewish mindset, this parable, we'll go through it here in a moment, but this parable about seating order is uh, at a dinner table is, uh, is very pertinent. It strikes a chord. Then in a Roman context, it strikes a double chord because in the Roman culture and society, uh, same issues were in play there, not for spiritual reasons, but for uh, political reasons, which to a Roman was all there was. <laughs> Everything was law to a Roman. Everything was the Roman law, the Roman uh, most marium, uh, the, the way of the, of the traditions, the, the laws of Rome. There was nothing else. And so rank was everything, and, and even what they ate and how they ate and what order they ate in, all of that was vital. Uh, even to the point where when you're laying on, reclining on the couch, the, the triclinium there that you would, would lay on to eat, the idea, the position there, you have three on the couch, and the idea was if you were reclining on Jesus' breast, for example, that showed your position was right there as you were positioned on the couches and it showed the, the, the intimacy between John and Christ because that's how they were positioned uh, at, the, at the meal. Anyway, I'll, I'll explain more on that here in a moment. Jew, I talked about how significant this is in a Jewish realm and how significant this parable is in a Roman realm. There's one additional realm where this is absolutely critical, and that's the angelic realm. Because when you go all the way back to Isaiah 14, you go all the way back to the fall of Satan, you go back to the very first ever sin, the first fall and rebellion against the will of God, something in play there was a seat that Satan lusted after, that he felt he deserved, but he was not entitled to it. And so a parable or a message that speaks of a, a claimant to a position, a seating position that he has to be removed from because someone superior of higher rank is entitled to that seat, that not only uh, grabs the Jewish mind and grabs the Roman mind, but that is absolutely a dagger to the heart of a satanic mind. In the five I wills of Satan, in Isaiah chapter 14, he says that uh, I will take my seat 
in the uh, recesses of the north. And God the Father says, that, that is not your seat. That is not yours. Part of the five eye wells of Satan's rebellion there. In the rebuke that comes in Hebrews, to which of the angels did the Father ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet? It's a, whoops, sorry. It's a, uh, it's a rhetorical question. Which, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is none of them. To none of the angels. That seat doesn't belong to any of them, even especially, most especially, the number one top dog rebel there that lusted after the seat and uh, was instrumental there in his, in his fall. So anyway, you can uh, do your own homework on that. Go back to uh, the five eye wells, and actually you'll find multiple, three, at least three of those five eye wells have to do with thrones, have to do with seats. Seating arrangements. And so a parable like this is uh, significant. All right, so let's look at it. So he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you were invited, so that's, that's how they started doing it, picking out for themselves. Well, I'm entitled to this seat. I'm entitled to that seat. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. Don't have such a high opinion of yourself, see. <laughs> and, and this clearly has a church age application as well because you have the uh, Romans 12 application. Not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment in, uh, in that. So don't overthink. Just be humble. And uh, he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. Because then you, you know, you're all embarrassed and you have to, it's a public humiliation at that point. You're acknowledging that you had a higher view of yourself than you should have had. And, and that in the pecking order of, of these social arrangements that you are inferior. And not only are you inferior, but you are also highly insulting to the superiors. And you end up going down to the very last place. The mark of your shame for having insulted the host of the uh, gathering is that you now take the, the least place. You take the... Uh, the guy that really shouldn't even be there at all, kind of a place. Corollary then in verse 10, when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. Go ahead and take that for yourself. Start there. Right? Just consider that you're a worm. Jesus did. But I'm a worm and not a man. Just uh, say, you know what? Why am I even here? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Why am I even here? Go and recline at the last place so that the one who has invited you comes he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Say, oh, well, you don't need to be there. Come on, you're, you belong up here. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Now the public exaltation is such that uh, those that are inferior to you will acknowledge as you move up to the spot, to the rank that you are uh, entitled to. Then uh, you can enjoy the benefits of that. And the illustration then is teaching the principle in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <clears throat> In fact, doesn't that verse right there kind of encapsulate the entire Bible? What did Satan do? Five I wills. It was all self-exaltation. I will do this, I will do this, I will do all, all this. Five different things, what I'm going to do, and it's all self-exaltation. He was 0 for 5, it's a terrible batting average. But what did Jesus do? Jesus did not declare any I will statements. He said, not as I will, but as thou will. 
Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus humbled himself. And this is the glorious thing, because and I draw this out occasionally, but I don't have time, but um, the, here's God, here's Satan, right? And he wants to exalt himself to be like the Most High God. And so here's God, and here's Satan. And so what does God do in the person of Jesus Christ? He lowers himself, not just to the angelic level, he drops down even lower than the angelic level. He comes down here to the realm of man, right? And to me, that's so vivid because Satan was here trying to exalt himself to be equal with God. And then God came down, not just to the level of angels, but down to the level of man. He dropped it way down, see, down. Like, you know, I think I'm singing deep and then Jacob comes along and shows what real down is all about, right? Well, Jesus comes down to the level of angels and then down to the level of man. Pathetic cockroach creature worm kind of things as far as the angels are concerned. Humbles himself. And in glorification then, if the Father then responds to that humility and then exalts him, he's exalted all the more. He has a name higher than any name that is named in the heavens or on the earth and the situation there. So when we come back next week and illustrate this, we'll we'll teach both parables because that's only the first one. And also I'll see if I can get some diagrams and pictures to kind of outline the Roman system of, of dining. It's, it's worthwhile looking at. Um, if you ever read um, the uh, Masters of Rome series, uh, she, uh, Colleen McCullough, for, uh, documents that extensively on the positioning of the, the, the different Romans in their rank structure uh, at the, uh, the dinner table. And then the second parable. Um, he went on to say, it's kind of like a continuation or a secondary application to the first parable. When you have a luncheon or a dinner, think about who you're inviting. And he actually gives them some counsel. It's not found anywhere in the Bible, it's not, but it's a principle of humility that if you're going to be a dinner host, well, we'll, we'll deal with that next week. I don't, I'm going to give it away. All right. We'll deal with that next week. Thank you, Father, for this day, for our time together. For the blessings of fellowshipping in the things of your word, Father, I love your word. It's just fun to read and study and and uh, chew on and think about and live. And Father, just uh, I thank you that you've given us your word, that we can live our lives according to your word. Father, uh, this this lost world is just drifting and and they have no guidance, no anchor, no direction. Uh, just fumbling along, doing what's right in their eyes, doing what seems good. Uh, living according to community standards and they're ever shifting and always plunging into deeper depravity and father i just rejoice that we have the unchanging eternal absolute righteous perfect holy standard of your word that we can align ourselves with it for blessing and to glorify your son father because he's the one that's worthy thank you father in his most precious and holy name amen